know how many of you have opportunity to stand in front of people or communicate with groups, but we all are communicators. We're all communicating all the time. And using word pictures can be a powerful tool in communication. Can move us beyond the merely logical to the place of emotive very quickly. A word picture can do that. It can move a person to the place of empathy when used correctly. It can, it can help the person you're trying to communicate with understand the feelings that you're feeling. An emotional word picture is a tool that simultaneously activates the emotions and the intellect in the hearer. And when you use word pictures to communicate, it can just go straight to the heart. You, you can get the information to the brain, but you can also speak directly to the heart. And uh, Focus on the Family writer John Trent tells a story of a word picture that just wrecked him. I read it this week and I want to share it with you. We don't talk anymore, shouted my wife, Cindy. That's ridiculous. We talk all the time, I said. But not about what we need to talk about, what's important to me, what's important for us. Then drive with me to my softball game. If it's that big a deal, you can talk to me on the way to the game about anything you want. But Cindy didn't want to go to the game. And soon afterwards, she wouldn't go to any of my games. I was convinced that she was just emotional or intentionally not explaining what she meant. She seemed convinced that I simply didn't care about her or anything that she had to say. That was the level of communication the first year of our marriage. We talked about how we needed to communicate with each other all the time, but we never actually communicated and connected. And Cindy became more and more hurt and lonely, and I grew more and more angry and lonely. And then the day came when things just totally blew up, but in an amazing way. On that day, Cindy used a powerful communication tool, a word picture, to change my life and our marriage. The story that made the difference. One morning, after a night of frustration with each other, we walked into the kitchen. I noticed there was a book on my breakfast plate. This is breakfast, I said, barely concealing my contempt. No, my wife said. That's me. I don't get it. You know how last semester you were taking this class, she asked. You were reading this book, taking notes on it almost every night. You dug into it, tried to learn everything that was there, not just for the test, but because you knew that it would help you help someone else someday. And I I nodded tentatively. And what's happened to that book now that you passed your course, now that you're on to another semester? And she didn't have to say it. I was using it as a doorstop in my study. Cindy looked me in the eye. You tossed it aside, she said. You don't pick it up anymore. It's not important to you now. And then without waiting for my response, she added, that book represents the way you've treated me ever since we got married. When we were dating, you couldn't wait to pick me up, to read every page, to talk and act like I was important to your future. I looked at the textbook in my hands, thankful that I had something in that moment to look at besides her disappointed expression. She went on, but now that we're married, and she pointed to her wedding ring, you've moved on to another semester, and I'm like that book holding your door open while you walk in and walk out and do all the things that are actually important to you. I'm just not one of them. I didn't just hear her words, I felt them. Cindy had said similar things using everyday words a hundred times before, but even when she would end our conversation in tears, it did not emotionally move me. 
But then she used this word picture, the right one for me at the right moment, and I not only got it, but it stopped me dead in my tracks, and it turned my heart in a different direction. And what Cindy had done without realizing it was the same thing that biblical communicators from King David to Jesus to Peter and Paul did all the time. She used a picture to carry the message of her words. In our text this morning in Galatians, uh, Paul is going to do the same thing. He's going to use a picture to communicate, essentially a a parable, an allegory, to teach a very important truth to the Galatian Christians and to us today. Uh, Keep in mind that with Jesus' parables, typically there were no proper names. They were generally not rooted in actual historical reality, but Paul in this is different. He is actually going to the Old Testament uh, to pull actual history from Israel. And keep in mind that the whole theme of his letter is him trying to convince the Galatians that they're justified by grace alone and not by works of the law, right? So he's going to pull historical figures and characters from biblical history, people that they'd be familiar with, stories that they would know to give his argument context. And they'd all be able to conceptualize it on a whole new level. And it's interesting to me in my reading this week that there are many commentators who look at this and think this is like the weakest point of Paul's argument. But I, after studying this week, I think it's the elbow suplex from the top rope that sends the other guy out on a gurney. I, I mean, this is like the, the body slam, okay? Paul's form of argumentation is very Jewish and even rabbinical, go figure. I mean, he's, he's, he's a Pharisee, right? Former Pharisee. And that means his first century readers are likely going to understand his meaning easily, whereas we 21st century Americans are going to maybe think of it as cold and clinical and like, why is he, why is he going there? I don't understand. And to make matters harder, while Paul's contemporaries would have known the people in history behind his argument, many people in the church today do not know their Old Testament. So it requires a bit of explanation. Remember that the contrast has been, to this point, law versus gospel, works versus grace. It was Puritan preacher James Smith who delineated this so clearly. He said, the law wounds, but the gospel heals. The law discovers the disease, but the gospel presents the remedy. The law will sound the alarm, but the gospel provides the place of refuge. The law binds with fetters, but the gospel proclaims freedom. The law strips us naked. The gospel clothes us in the best robe like the, like the prodigal son. The law demands that I must die. But the gospel says, Christ died for me. It's this attempt to return the church to a legalistic foundation that Paul has rightly recognized not only as dangerous to the Christian faith, but devastating and destructive to it. It would only serve to undermine the whole gospel message. Warren Wearsby said this. He said, legalism does not mean the setting of spiritual standards. It means worshiping those standards, thinking that we are somehow spiritual because we obey those standards. It also means judging other believers on the basis of those standards. And then it was Charles Spurgeon who wonderfully remarked that grace puts its hand on the boasting mouth and shuts it once for all. It's grace that shuts the mouth of boasting. That's what Paul's trying to help the Galatians understand with his word picture here in chapter 4. So if you have your Bible this morning, we're in Galatians 4, 21 to 31. And if you have your mobile device, you have the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, you can go to the YouVersion app and on the main menu, click events, and then you'll see Emmaus Road Church. And my sermon notes are there if you want to follow along. If that helps you to read while you listen, please feel free to do that. 
Paul says, Galatians 4.21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave (coughs) was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So let's go back and unpack this together. Look at, look at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? They have, they have succumbed to and are promoting legalism. They, they, they want to be under the law as the basis for a relationship with God. And I think we, we, we tend to ask ourselves, um, who, who would want legalism? Who would desire to be under the law? But it's actually kind of attractive in some ways when you think about it. Uh, I had a family member when we were doing campus ministry, and she had grown up in a house. Her mom had died uh, when she was very young, and her dad, God bless him, had tried the best he could, but he was, he was just a, 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 he was struggling with the loss of his wife. And, and she never knew what was going to please him and what was going to displease him. And when she got to college, she started dating a Catholic guy, and she fell in love with Catholicism because here was a system that said, if you just do these four or five things, you're good. It didn't have to be a relationship with this invisible God where you're, you're, you're just staying connected to him and relating to him. You can just check off your boxes and you know that you're good. And that was very attractive to her, right? That very attractive, easier to have a, that kind of relationship with God where she just knew she was good if she had done these four or five things. And so you always have an outward list of rules to keep and you can pat yourself on the back for keeping those rules and sometimes for keeping them better than other people around you. And eventually if you work hard enough, you can try to take credit for your own salvation. That's a a vain pursuit, ultimately, obviously. But the result is self-righteousness, not Christ's righteousness. So Paul's arguing against those who want to go back into Judaism and take Jesus with them. It it would essentially be a hybrid religion, uh, affirming Jesus and the cross, but also living under the law as a way of pleasing God and winning his favor. And so everything that Paul unpacks here is directed at convincing them not to go back to Moses. Don't go back to Moses. They, They desperately need to consider the implications and consequences of what they're attempting to do. So he's arguing from an Old Testament perspective with a group of people who want to take Jesus back to the Old Testament with them and that Old Testament way of relating to God. And so you can, you, can, you can have the law of Moses as a way of relating to God or you can have Jesus, but you can't have both of those things. 
Look at 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So you've got to stop and say, why did Paul appeal to Abraham? Well, because Abraham is prior to Moses. Right? Before him. So his covenant with God in a way outranks the Mosaic covenant because it was even before. It came before Moses. And so Abraham, not Moses, is the father of those who are faith or, or those who are faithful. And to understand this, I, I need to take you back to Genesis 16. The narrative in Genesis is really helpful to us. And I'm just going to read all of chapter 16. So uh, it says, now Sarai, Sarai, Abram's wife, this is before the name changes, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, now behold, the Lord's prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that it may be that I obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be upon you. Now stop right there. Really? This was your idea, lady. Um... I gave you my servant, I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly have, here have I seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, and it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. So God had already told Abram, You're going to be the father of many nations. As numerous as the sands on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky, will be your offspring. But because things seemed slow, Sarah, Sarai then, thought she'd help God out. (laughs) You ever thought you could help God out? Right? Those of you who have are grinning because you know that didn't go well. Right? We, God doesn't need our help. And when we try to help God along, we usually make things worse, not better. So you've got two women sharing one man, and that never goes well. Uh, unhappy home life, lots of tension. 14 years pass, and Abraham is 99 years old, and Sarah is 89 years old, and, and the scripture says, and it's good as dead. Her body's as good as dead. There is no chance 
later in the text that um, that they're going to have a child together. Okay, there's no chance. But that's precisely what Jesus tells her. And she's going to conceive a child within a year's time. And you, and you go, no wonder she laughed. No wonder she laughed. She's looking back at the births of both boys here. Ishmael came by human effort. You can see that in the text. It was their effort, their cleverness. They tried to help God. But Isaac came by God's promise. Right? Ishmael's born of a slave because his mother was a slave. Isaac is born free because his mother is free. So we keep going with the text. 24. Now this can be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, and she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. Uh, this, This idea of corresponding to uh, here, Paul's inviting his readers to basically like get a piece of paper and make two columns, and then you'll see the connections match back and forth, side-by-side comparison of these elements in the narrative relating to new covenant realities. And in the verse 27, he's quoting Isaiah 54, when he says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing, cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one are, are, will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. And, and while like Isaiah 54 doesn't have any direct connection to Genesis 16, uh, it's 100% appropriate to Paul's argument because when you read that chapter in Isaiah, you see later, like in verse 5, he says, For your maker is your husband. This is all about the new covenant. This is all about the saints of God being in relationship to Jesus. And and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called, right? So it ties us all together, and that's why Paul includes it here. But the argument sets up Hagar as an example of Mount Sinai and Sarah as the Jerusalem that's above. So you got like this Old Testament rap battle between Hagar and says, I'm just waiting, I just want to make sure some of you are awake. He's like, did he say Old Testament rap battle? Just YouTube it, you'll be fine. Mount Sinai was where God gave the law to Moses. And the people trembled at the f- in fear at the base of the mountain, right? You remember the scene? God comes, he descends in fire on the mountain, and, and the people tremble, and they're just they're terrified. It represents all of our efforts to get close to God, which only result in sin and more brokenness. It's all of our effort. And Sarah, by contrast, is not the slave, but the legitimate wife of Abraham, who's the father of faith. So her children, represented by Isaac, they all come to their father by faith. Do you see the picture? They're coming by faith. Not by their works, but by, by faith. So you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. So like Isaac, we who are God's children by adoption, you remember that sermon, that part of Paul's earlier argument, we have been born of a promise. We're born by miraculous means according to God's good grace when we're saved. And so it goes on, 29 and 30. But just as the time, just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, so here's a promise in scripture. We talk about this from time to time, uh, that true Christians will be persecuted. It's a promise from God. What a wonderful promise that the Lord gives us that we will experience persecution. Uh, just to reinforce this for you, let me give you three New Testament uh, passages that reinforce this. Philippians 1.29. It has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What a wonderful promise. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then 1 Peter 4.12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And so Paul's admonition here is to endure that hardship, but also to cast out the slave woman and her son. That sounds really harsh to us. Sounds really harsh. But Paul is telling the Galatians to kick the Judaizers out. Get them out of here. Kick them out. Get them out from among the church in the same way that Sarah ran off Hagar and Ishmael. Get them out. Get them out of here. It's just going to cause problems. Kick them out. So, so verse 31 wraps it up. It says, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So, so, so this is a summation of the allegorical argument of Paul. And, and if you notice, there's one little change here. He's been saying, you, 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 you. And then now he says, we. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And that's a very deliberate inclusion of the Galatians because he's convinced that this is going to, this is going to win them over to right thinking and, and just having nailed the coffin shut on the Judaizers argument, uh, and leading them astray. So essentially Paul's saying that the law is not above the Christian. The Christian is above the law. You tracking with that? The law is not above us anymore. We are not subject to, subjugated by, under the law. We are now over the law. The law is under us. It didn't go away. It didn't cease to exist. But by the power of the Spirit, we soar above it, no longer bound by it. Here's a great analogy for you. I would like for you to experience flight. How would you do that? Well, you go to the airport and you get on a plane. And if you're in the plane, as long as you stay in the plane, you are flying. Now, if at any point during the course of the flight you step out of the plane, what happens? You cease to fly and you begin to fall because the law of gravity did not go away. It's still there. But as long as you're in the plane, the laws of thrust and aerodynamics and lift all allow you, as long as you're in the plane, that's the power is not yours. The power is in the plane, right? And so it's allowed you to supersede the law of gravity, to to experience flight. So in the same way, this this is what it means to be in Christ, right? You're not superseding gravity by your own strength, but by the power of the plane that you're in. If you don't believe me, stand on your roof and flap your arms as hard as you can and just let me know how that goes for you. Hey, get a running start down the slope and just leap off that gutter and just let me know. I mean, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go well, I promise. Um, as long as you stay in the plane, you can exceed the law of gravity. But the law of gravity didn't cease to exist. It didn't go anywhere, right? So this is the idea. This message is incredibly relevant. This message is incredibly relevant, and we need to understand it. For some, there's a struggle with the relevance of this. Modern American Christians tempted to look at issues Paul was passionate about. Ooh, just yawn. He's just dealing with theological speculations and splitting hairs. I've got other problems. I've got marriage issues. I, I can't pay my bills. I've got personal issues and relational conflicts. Give me practical application for living, not this theological allegory about being right with God. 
But what we fail to see is that this is the most important issue in our lives, being right with God. This is the most important thing because if that's not right, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Your marriage doesn't matter. Your parenting doesn't matter. Your financial situation doesn't matter because you need to get right with God. You've got to get right with God. If you get that right, if you get right with God, God will will bless your marriage and your finances and your personal issues if you submit to his word. Are you preaching prosperity gospel? No, I'm preaching Matthew 6. If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added unto you because your pursuit is him and his righteousness and his goodness and glory. And he's going to take care of those things as you submit to him. But you've got to get right with him. You see, there are only two streams of humanity, and only two. Two, two divisions in the world. And, and the, the, the divide here has nothing to do with ethnicity, has nothing to do with skin color, nothing to do with language, place of birth, any of those things. In God's eyes, humanity is divided into two groups, two categories, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac, every person in the world stands in one of those two streams being descended from the slave woman or descended from the free woman. Either you are a slave to works, slave to sin, and therefore lost and not connected to the life of Jesus, or you're a slave to the free because of God's grace and you've received it in faith. Those are the only distinctions. Sarah represents the promise of God found in the gospel, the good news that Jesus loves us, died for our sins, and then rose from the grave that we might live with him forever. And the salvation that he offers us is free to anyone who would receive it by faith. This is what the free woman producing free children looks like in the allegory. Freedom begets freedom. Grace begets grace. Remember that the Jews revered Abraham as their father genealogically and spiritually. This was the big thing when Jesus would deal with the Pharisees. Well, we're Abraham's descendants. He's like, no, you're actually sons of Satan. A really popular thing to say to the Pharisees. But, um, Paul is just blowing up this idea that your lineage tracing to Abraham even matters, right? Because he's telling them that God's family is made up of those who have relationship with God by faith, not by genealogy. It's about faith, not your family tree. And this is a crucial point to make because millions of people around the world today still make this mistake. They say, well, I'm Catholic, so I'm okay. Well, I was baptized Presbyterian. My father was a Baptist preacher. My parents raised me in the Methodist church. How people trust in their spiritual heritage. How they trust in their church connections. They trust in their membership. They trust in their denominational distinctives. They got to trust in Jesus because none of that stuff gets you into heaven. None of it. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And you have to have a personal one-on-one relationship with him. No one else can have that for you. Listen, listen to me, listen to me. It doesn't matter one iota what your parents or grandparents or your, your great uncle twice removed believed about God. What matters is what you believe and whether you put your faith in Christ, you don't gain access to Jesus through your earthly relations. I heard an old Southern Baptist preacher say this when I was growing up and it just stuck with me. And it's as true today as it was in Paul's time. And he said, God ain't never had a grandchild only a child will do. I love that. 
God ain't never had a grandchild. Only a child will do. And the Judaizers were asking, who's your daddy? Is your daddy Abraham? And Paul said, the question's not who's your daddy, it's who's your mom? Who's your mama? Is it Hagar or Sarah? Just totally shifts the whole argument. And this message is so incredibly relevant. Because it's so impactful and it's so divisive, this is the one divide that divides humanity, right? Those who are walking in Sarah or walking in Hagar, saved, unsaved, we should expect persecution. That's what Paul tells us here in the text. We should expect persecution from those who practice a religion of works. And, and you know, if you've been here at all, that works, the, the, I have to do something to be right with God is the totality of all the other religious systems in the world. There's something that you have to do. There's something that you have to work out. There's something that is required of you in order to gain standing with the deity or the religious practitioners, whatever it is. And in contrast to that D-O system of religion, Jesus said it is D-O-N-E. It's done. It's finished. I did it. You don't have to do anything but just believe. Believe. No one hates God's grace more than people who are trying to save themselves by good works. And so our chief opposition comes from religious people. It comes from religious people. Paul's greatest enemies were not the philosophers of Athens. Paul's greatest enemies were the Pharisees and the religious Jews. Faith will always be a threat to people who think that they can save themselves by their works. So listen, if you're coming to church out of compulsion, out of obligation, instead of out of an intense love for God, you you, you might need to wrestle with that. And we all go through seasons where we have to will ourselves to obey. We all go through seasons where we don't want to and we just we need to muscle through it. But, but if love is not the predominant motive of your heart in gathering to worship with the family of God, you are in danger. You are in danger. I think uh, if you think your service or your giving to the church is earning you something with God, you, you are mistaken. You're mistaken. Coming to church will not save you. Giving 10% of your income will not save you. Serving on the worship team, coming early to set up, staying late to tear down will not save you. Only Jesus can save you. And so as we walk by faith and proclaim this incredibly important and relevant message, we're going to experience hardship and persecution. And as we do, we do not compromise. Do not compromise. We must never compromise with those who do not accept the truth of God's word. We need to share the gospel. We need to make it known. We need to love them with the love of Jesus, but we do not compromise what we believe. It was Sarah who told Abraham to throw Hagar and Ishmael out of the house. And that seems so cruel to us. But if Paul's right in the analogy, then Sarah knew exactly what needed to be done. Because the promise of God through grace must be preserved at all costs. It cannot be compromised or we all lose the gospel. And so they had to go. We must never compromise the core doctrinal beliefs of the Christian faith. I won't list them all, but I'll give you a few. The Bible is God's inspired, infallible word, inerrant in the original manuscripts. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man and was perfect and sinless. Jesus was born of a virgin and literally bodily rose again from the dead. 
You don't have that. You don't have the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith, and only through Jesus Christ. There's no other name by which man might be saved. Every person that's ever lived and ever will live on the planet has a sin issue that keeps us separated from God. And only Jesus could, could and did atone and pay for that sin debt with his precious blood and reconcile us to God. These are non-negotiables. We've got to, to hold fast to these and stand for these truths, even if it costs us everything. You see, I, I, watch, I watch a lot of Christians in our culture make this mistake. And they, and they hear the culture talking to them and, and the world wooing them and saying, if you'll just compromise this one thing or these two issues, if you could just give us some, some leeway here and kind of back off of the truth of this truth claim, just kind of ease off of that, things will go well. We can, we, can, we can all get along. Let me tell you, that is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. Because when you give up that position, it's another and then it's another, and then it's another, and then it's another, and then you're on a little island in the middle of the ocean all by yourself. You see, there is no amount of truth that you can give up to gain the acceptance of the world except all of it. There's no amount of truth that you can give up from the scripture that will gain you the acceptance and approval of the culture except for all of it. You see, the the heart of what we believe, that Jesus had to do it for us because we're not good enough, that's the problem. That's the offense with the the world. We don't want to believe that because we think we're inherently good. We can do it ourselves. So do not grow faint. Do not grow weary. Do not lose heart. As Christ followers, there's no reason to envy anybody in the world. No one is as free as we are in Christ Jesus. I mean, you watch the people around you. Some people are going to excel in business. Some people are going to make millions. They're going to live lavish, lavish lives. Others are going to rise to the top of the entertainment world. Not many people in this room are going to be super rich or super famous in this life. But don't give in to jealousy. Don't envy that. Riches and worldly pleasure... If you don't have Jesus and you live a life of comfort, ease, worldly pleasure, fame, stardom, wealth... That's it. What comes next is not good. That's all you got. Riches and worldly pleasure are all people will get for a short time in this life now. And with those things comes a gnawing emptiness that no amount of money and fame can can satisfy. But if you are known by the God of the universe, and if you are loved by his son Jesus, who's the king of kings and lord of lords, and if you put your faith in Jesus to save you from your sins, there's more to come, and it only gets better. It only gets better. When an unrepentant sinner dies in their sin, their life is over and things get worse. Do not envy them for a moment. Our joy in the presence of our King and His presence is eternal and everlasting. And His scripture says that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him. Do not envy the world and do not compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit has given us a powerful word picture this morning to stir our hearts and affections and to remind us that the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not by works. We stand with Paul, we stand with the apostles on the foundation of Christ Jesus, and we embrace these truths, even if it means persecution, as we refuse to compromise with the world. We have to stand. So you have heard the word of God today, and you have heard the gospel message today. 
Now, I just want to say to you as we wrap up this morning, if you have received the gospel and if you have believed on Jesus, then you have an obligation to make him known. You've been given the most valuable thing in the universe. And you have an obligation to make him known. If you have understood the gospel enough to put your faith in Jesus, then you understand the gospel enough to share with someone else what he's done for you. In the book of James, it says that we are a people who hear and believe the word of God, but do not do what it says. And people who hear the word of God and don't obey the word of God, James says that we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We have great Bible teachers in the American church. We are great Bible hearers. And we are great Bible understanders. We are terrible Bible obeyers. My prayer for you this morning is you would transition from hearing and believing the word of God to doing and obeying. Transition from hearing to obeying that we might see a great harvest of souls. We started this morning some worship and I came up and I said the mission of our church is to to build disciples, develop leaders, and multiply churches. Listen, we can't do that if people aren't coming to know Jesus. That's kind of the prerequisite to making disciples is people have to put their faith in Jesus, right? So if we're going to fulfill the mission of Jesus, we've got to share the gospel. And we're going to let that be the basis of our prayer as we close today. We just want to embrace these truths. We just talked through some core doctrines and beliefs that, that establish the, the heart of Christianity. And this is incredibly relevant. This message is so relevant to the lost. And so we just stop this morning. Lord, we pray right now uh, that you would help us to embrace and, and take into ourselves these truths. We would really study to show ourselves approved, a workman uh, who, who rightly divides the word of truth as we understand these realities and embrace them and make them known. And so uh, right where you are, just pray into that for just a minute that you, you know people in your life who don't know Jesus. Would you just say their faces come before you? Would you pray for them by name and ask God to begin establishing his truth in you in such a way that it begins to spill out over and into the lives of other people. Let's pray that right now.